The Articulate Coven is the original, unofficial podcast and fan community for Anne Rice's Interview with the Vampire and Anne Rice's Immortal Universe from AMC and AMC+. Welcome back to Articulate Coven, the unofficial podcast and fan community for Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles and the Vampire Lestat, including the forthcoming TV show. We are your hosts. I'm Joel Sharpton. I'm Ashley Wright-Eiler. And we are here today to discuss Interview with the Vampire, the book that started this whole thing. Uh, we've got some news to get to, and uh, we're going to discuss the book at length, both a spoiler-free and spoiler-filled section, so uh, <laughs> stay tuned for that. But uh, how, are, how are you doing, Ashley? It's been a while since we recorded. I'm fantastic. It was, it's been really fun to, uh, to go back and, and reread. Um, I'm excited to, now that we're, I'm finished interview actually last night so I'm excited to get rolling with with Lestat next so um yeah but I'm doing good everything's everything's groovy I've been busy 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 so let's talk about what it was like uh hearing yourself on a podcast uh it's the first time right this is your first show (laughs) it's the first one that I've actually listened to after I participated in it if that makes any sense um yes I've, I've done a couple about um I do improv comedy and I've done we've done a couple of podcasts about about that and I never listened to them because it horrified me so I definitely um it was it was really exciting to pull it up on Stitcher which is where I listen to most of my podcasts and um and it's the same same place I listen to like my favorite murder and things like that so it was really weird to to listen to myself through a medium that I've enjoyed a lot of other people's work on you know but it's like seeing yourself on tv or something yeah yeah Yeah, you know uh I don't I don't generally like to watch myself do my work generally speaking even you know with watching videos of my improv performances and things like that it just makes me horribly uncomfortable but this did not make me throw up in my mouth so I'm very pleased (laughs) (laughs) well that is that is a high bar indeed we'll try not to make you throw up again uh, today as well thanks to everybody who's checked out the show by the way subscribed shared it with your friends you can continue to do that find us at Articulate Coven we're in iTunes we're on Stitcher as Ashley said we're also on the Google Play Music app if you're an Android user and prefer that one you can check us out there Uh, and wherever you find us share us with your friends, especially your Anne Rice loving friends. We've got a lot of fun stuff lined up for you, and it's always more fun if there's uh, more people along for the party. Uh, Ashley, why don't you? Uh, why don't we get to the news? What do you say about that? Okay, excellent. Let's go. Uh, so, we, and we knew that something was coming. Anne and Christopher both. Christopher Rice, her son, had both been hinting that they had a a secret project to announce sometime soon, unrelated to the Vampire Chronicles, and. Christopher in particular had dropped some hints on Twitter months back that led me to believe it might have something to do with The Mummy, Ramsey's The Damned, a book that Anne wrote quite a long time ago and had never returned to, even though the book specifically set itself up for a sequel. And I think there's even a, a, a coda at the end that says, you know, the Ramsey's will return sort of thing almost. Um so the announcement finally came uh, about March uh, 14th or 15th. They posted it together in a live video to Facebook. And then Entertainment Weekly on the 16th had an exclusive uh, of not only the details of the project, but an excerpt, as a matter of fact. It is Ramses the Damned back in a sequel novel entitled Ramses the Damned, The Passion of Cleopatra. And it's going to be out this fall. Um, Ashley, what do you think about Ramses? Are you a Mummy fan? Um, I have never read it. 
Really? Really, I know. It's shocking. Um, I have never read it, so I'm super excited. I have to be really honest, I'm not into mummies. It's not really my thing, you know? Like, I just, like, the old mummy movies have never really appealed to me. Now, I will say I did love the mummy series with Brendan Fraser. I thought that was super fun. Um, but I just, it, it never had that much appeal to me, Um until until recently actually so that's definitely one i'm gonna i have a copy of it i'm gonna dust off and 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 go through so i'm super excited and i'm also excited selfishly that i hadn't read it yet so i didn't have to wait that long for the sequel (laughs) yes yeah absolutely it's it's gonna be good for you because you'll get them both sort of back to back right into the brain yeah Uh, we will absolutely cover ramsey's the damned the the mummy the original novel at some point on an upcoming episode uh, before this book comes out i will hope for anyway because it, it is it's one of my favorites i am also not a huge mummy fan i am a big fan of the universal um, studios monster films you know all of those classic yeah. films i like that era of filmmaking in general and there was a part of this book i think that is very much Anne's homage to that it definitely has that adventurous style um that it even has in common with the brendan Frazier uh, mummy films. Now it's not as um, comedy uh, comedic as that. Right. It's not as uh, you know laugh a minute. And there aren't really gags in the mummy book. What there is in the mummy book, in my recollecting recollection anyway, is a lot of sex. It's a very very sensual book. Sexy, um, sexy which- mummies. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, so the the basic storyline is that you have uh, Ramses, an ancient, ancient man who, uh, in his own lifetime, stumbled across an elixir that gave him immortal life. And I think... If I'm if I'm not uh, getting this incorrect, I believe it's almost the exact opposite of the vampires in that he is actually fueled by the sun. So one of the ways that you can sort of um, belittle him or take his power away is to lock him away in a crypt, for instance, like a mummy, wrap him up, cover him up, put him under the ground, and then he, he sort of withers away uh-huh. over time. Um, he is discovered in not modern day, but I think it is like the 20s or the 30s uh, by a British... Um, uh, archaeologist and then eventually comes once he's back to his full powers he arrives in in London of that day and you know it's like 1920s London uh, he has a love affair with the archaeologist's daughter you know that sort of thing and uh, at Cleopatra who is his nemesis in many ways uh, also returns to um, quote unquote modern day London and and there is a, a chase afoot at the end of the book you sort of believe that Cleopatra is gone but clearly here that is not the case as she is the title character for the sequel um, I'll read you the, the little blurb here, um, not the excerpt. I'm not going to give anything big away there, but uh, this uh, debut novel from the duo, Christopher and Anne, I, well, I, we've lost that over. They're going to be writing this together. Yeah, I'm this so excited about their that. Their first published project. Well, the really exciting thing for us, Ashley, is that this will give us some glimpse of how their writing is going to work potentially for the series, since they are working on the Bible, at least, of that together. This will give us an idea of what their combined voice might be. Yeah, what it's going to kind of feel like and sound like. I'm excited because they're very, both of them are very distinct writers, you know, and so I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see what it's like when they, they mesh and meld so I, I was wrong about the 20s and 30s. This was even the early teens, uh, London. 1914 London is when the sequel is set, and it's apparently right after the original book. Reginald, uh, he's living as Dr. Reginald Ramsey in uh, 1914 London. Unbeknownst to him, his former love and current nemesis Cleopatra is still alive and also searching for the secret of the elixir of life. Their search brings both immortals across a mysterious queen who is not only both older and more powerful than either of them, but also in possession of knowledge 
of a wider variety of magical potions, including the one that's responsible for their prolonged lives. Really interesting stuff. And for those of you, and I'm not going to give any spoilers here, but for those of you who have read the most recent Vampire Chronicles, sort of some echoes of um, tying both the future and the past of her characters together. I think that's kind of interesting. I love it. I love. I, I like to think that all of these characters all of these universes she's created all exist together you know like i like to think it's all one big world you know kind of like with, with well, stephen king with like dairy um dairy maine all those stories that take place in that same town i sort of feel like like in my mind i like i like to think of Anne rice's works being that sort of similar thing so I, I think given the, the last couple of uh, VC books, I think she sort of stepped away from this idea, but she very much tied the Mayfair books and the Vampire Chronicles together Absolutely. in that they have characters that cross over and, and those clearly exist in the same world. But uh, Ramsey's actually is hinted at a couple of times by some of the more ancient vampires. The idea is that they saw another immortal that didn't work like they did. And so there is a possibility, I think, that um, those worlds cross over as well. In the modern day, when you think about franchises like Star Wars and the Marvel Cinematic Universe where, uh, you know, your very mainstream, quote-unquote, normal consumer of entertainment is accustomed to these overarching franchises and universes that contain multiple storylines. I think, I mean, even something as simple as NCIS and Law & Order, right? Those characters crossed over, and I think people get that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, I think it's something that lets people connect with, with, like, the full the full, um, gosh, what's the right word? Catalog of someone's work. You know what I mean? And that way, even if you're not super into, into X, you like Y and Z, and it sort of allows you to kind of dance in and out of those worlds. Yeah, you, you put a little bit of that delicious peanut butter in my chocolate and vice versa. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that book is out on November 21st, Ramsey's the Damned, The Passion of Cleopatra. And here's something cool that uh, Anne and Christopher mentioned. Uh, you can go check this out on their Facebook page for the full link. But if you pre-order the book and you email them a uh, an image of your receipt for the pre-order, they will send you a signed copy of of one page of the manuscript. <laughs> so how cool is that? That's awesome. I love it. Right? Yeah, I think that was a, a really neat idea and uh, I mean, I don't I don't I've never seen any other authors do something like that for free for their entire fan base if no, they she's, want to. So go Yeah, she's really good to us. I have to say that. I really I feel like as someone who's who's been a fan of hers for so long, I feel like she's so good to her fans. Well, and it's it's not like we're owed it, but I mean, no, you not look at, at even even somebody like Stephen King, who at least is public, you know, he he posts on Twitter, he writes blogs and and articles and magazines and things like mm-hmm. that on a regular basis. But he doesn't, you know, he doesn't put his face out there. Let's no. be honest, he doesn't do interviews, he doesn't do live videos, he doesn't talk to the fans directly very often in in that many ways. Not that he again, not that he needs to, but Anne really does. She engages with her fans directly. It's clear that she cares what they think about the product. Not in a way like, I mean, obviously she has her stories that she wants to tell, but she also is aware that these are not just her stories. There are stories now too. Right. And I love that she directly, you know, she had a post on, on Facebook the other day, like, how would you react if someone came to you and told you that they thought vampires were real? Like, what would you, yes. how would you react to that? What would your reaction to that be? And it's, and she legitimately wants to know what people think, you know, what, how, 
how you would react if somebody like that's the most absurd thing ever and you would probably think the person's mentally ill you know and and so it was just it was it struck up a really interesting conversation in the comments about like that sort of thing so uh all right that is our news for today why don't we go ahead and get to the the crux of this episode and let's start talking about uh, the book that indeed started this all interview with the vampire yes um Ashley, were you aware that this was a short story first? I was not. I think maybe I did know that at some point, but I totally have forgotten it. But yeah, no. So it, it was published in Playboy, but it started even before that. You know, she, she finished the short story version in 1973, August of 1973. That was about one year after her daughter, Michelle, had passed away of leukemia. Um, Michelle was five years old at the time, and clearly anyone who's read this book can immediately see a parallel there. Um, you, you can see that she wrote the character of Claudia in many ways to reflect and to grieve the loss of her child and, and to work through some of those ideas about what it is to, to bury a child young. But even before that inciting incident, I had always had it in my mind that it was that loss that spurned her to go and write the short story. That's not the case. Um, she started it in the 60s, and the original version was quite different than even the final short story, and then the short story was quite different than the eventual novel that we got. The character, the vampire that is the interviewee um, in the short story, is very unlike Louis. He is quite cavalier with his immortality and not worried about his moral well-being at all, and is in fact in this room, which does not belong to him, awaiting the return of the owner of the room so that he can kill and and drain him. Um and he's toying with the interviewer for, you know, with, with this whole idea of his cold, calculating, you know, killer nature. And clearly, Louis does that at times in the book. He toys with uh, Daniel, the reporter, but that is not Louis's nature. And it comes through even in the first few pages of their interaction. Um, but in the original short story, it was sort of, she describes him, Anne Rice has described him as a, an Oliver Wilde type almost. Um, and so it is interesting to see the origins and perhaps how that original character might have been like the rough draft in some ways of Lestat. Right. Um, to eventually, you know, rear his head in the second book. But so that was the origins of it. Now, when she turned it into the longer work, it is clearly about, the loss of her daughter, Michelle, that sort of everything springs off. But the basic story is, if you've never read the book, and if you haven't, what are you doing here? Uh, <laughs> if the, if the, uh, but the basic story is, is this. Louis, a uh, vampire of uh, an undeterminate age, is uh, engaging with a reporter who has a, you know, a bag full of tape, and he's got his little mini tape recorder there in front of him, and Louis wants to share his story. The reporter doesn't believe that Louis is actually a vampire when this begins, he's just there for a good story. And in the short story in particular, it's clear that he's on a deadline and he's, he's trying to get something on for local radio. I think in the book, it's a little unclear exactly, you know, what Daniel is going to do with it. But that is the basic uh, idea of the thing. And then over the course of the novel, we discover what Louis's life is like, both as a mortal, the end of his life, at least as a mortal, and then in particular, what his life has been like as an immortal, a vampire living in New Orleans and all over Europe, and then returning to the States in what was at the time modern day United States. So we're talking about, you know, the, the late seventies, the early eighties. Um, when was the first time that you read interview and you started with interview property? I did. Right? That I was did. your first book. Mm -hmm. I, I read it in, I got it. Had to, I was in junior high. 
it was in junior high for sure. Um, I think I mentioned in the last episode, I was really, I was really interested in starting with um, the witching hour. There was a copy of the witching hour at my house, but my mom kind of steered me over to interview. I don't really know why, but that's where we went. And yeah, I, I tore through that book in like a day and a half. I did not sleep as I am frequently I want to do like with books. I, it's the only thing I am OCD about. I will one more chapter myself into the next day. And that's how, I mean, I tore through that book. And it wasn't, I feel like it wasn't too, too long after that, that the the rumblings of the movie had started um, because it, I feel like I just became real obsessed in very rapid succession with the whole thing. But um, I just, I immediately like, when I had gone through this time reading it, highlighting a lot of the descriptions, especially in at the beginning of the book, when when he's kind of laying out all the all the pictures of 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 his plantation and his family's life and all of that, like she just paints such beautiful pictures for us. And um, I think that's initially what sort of hooked me in. You know, I was really into I was really into like classic classic literature. You know, reading reading classic stuff and I I you know had been reading Shakespeare since I was like 10 so this kind of just I don't know it was exciting for me to read a modern author that wrote in this style that I thought was so entrancing so uh, to show my fan bona fides here I am holding my copy of the vampire companion the official guide to Anne Rice's uh, vampire chronicles by Catherine Ramsland uh, who also wrote which I also own the witch's companion about the Mayfair books. Um, and, and a lot of times I'll, I'll refer to, to things uh, from this book. If you've never seen this, there's a couple of editions out of it. At least I have the second edition, which uh, is the, the big paperback and it includes um, revised and updated entries uh, for Mimnock the devil. That shows you how old this oh, thing is. Awesome. It goes all the way back to right after the release of Mimnock. But you know, Anne has said in lots of places, and, and I'm, I'm quoting her here from Catherine Ramsland. She says, I was Louis when I wrote it. Uh, the theme of Louis' story, a fruitless quest for redemption through empty religious concepts, held great personal significance for me. Um, it, I mean, it, it is clearly a book that is weighed down by someone who is not sure whether they want to live, who is not a positive about the nature of the universe, um, God, what is good, what is right, what is the nature of suffering, you know, all of these sorts of things. Clearly, the sorts of things that you roll around in when you lose a child at five years old. I mean, that it, it's always struck me as what a powerful moment that is. And thank God, in Anne's case, we didn't get uh, an ended life or a, uh, a lifetime of depression. We got an entire universe of creation that sprung forth from this moment for her. Absolutely. I think that's, I mean, I can't even imagine, I can't even imagine what that, what that would be like and what that had to be like for her. I think that there's, I, I do like, I was not really raised with much religion, organized religion, um, as, as we know it here in the South, particularly. Um, so a lot of, a lot of Louis's questions are questions that I had, you know what I mean? Um, musings and things that I wondered. Um, the nature of evil, I think, is something that he really struggles with. What's evil? Am I evil? How do Am I becoming evil? How do I keep from being evil? Am I just intrinsically, is there something intrinsically in me that is, that is bad, that is wrong? You know, is it something I can fight? I, I don't know. I love, 
I love all the moral questions in in this book in particular. Louis, Louis, so I love him as a character. I I have more, I love him more than Lestat. Lestat, I think, like deep down, as far as like feeling empathy for him and 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 being able to see parts of myself in Louis as well. So okay, so let's let's take that right there before we get into the spoilers specifically. Somebody who's listening to this or, or uh, and who has never read the book, maybe they've seen the movie, they've read some of the other books, they are excited about this upcoming TV series, or maybe they're listening in the future and they found the TV series and they're working their way backwards. You make your pitch. Why should you go and read? It's the only book of the Vampire Chronicles that has Louis as the main character. We talked about in the last episode. There are lots of details here that are directly refuted by Lestat when he gets his turn to tell tell the story. Why is it worth going back and spending this time with Louis, who everyone will admit is the Eeyore of vampires? <laughs> he really is. Maybe that's why I feel so sorry for him. <laughs> um, I think what's really great is that because the majority of the rest of the stories are told from Lestat's perspective, it's it's interesting, I feel like, to get to see how others view him. And 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 it is a bit of a trick when you if you read from the beginning and and then and went on, like you think I thought it was gonna all be about Louis. Like I thought this whole series was probably gonna be more about Louis than 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 Lestat, who seems like this, you know, asshole we don't really like that much, um, that we're eventually gonna absolutely fall in love with. But I don't know. I love, I love how vulnerable Louis is. He's very, very different from from our other vampires, um, and you really do get to see Lestat through someone else's eyes. Someone who is not necessarily a hundred percent enamored of him all the time. I think that's another thing. Is so you know Lestat's so easy to fall in love with, um, and we see that throughout the Vampire Chronicles. You know, everyone's in love with Lestat, <laughs> um, and he's. And you know, you know what I think is interesting there, and and. The other relationships, especially the ones that are, you know, more close to 50-50 antagonistic and love, like Louis and Lestat, the other relationships tend to literally be pendulum swings. Either they are in love with Lestat at the moment, or they are so enraged by his actions or his uh, attitude toward them that they're sort of, uh, you know, on the outs with him. Well, and I think Louis... Louis holds both those thoughts at the same time. Mm-hmm. He adores Lestat in a way that you know few other characters in the books do, and yet he is always fully aware of what Lestat is and who Lestat is, and that Lestat always comes first in his mind, no matter how much he may love you back. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that that's part of that is he's. I think that Louis is so taken aback by Lestat's selfishness, and I think that because Claudia was involved, and we have this this childlike presence that's involved with 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 most of what's the important meat of their relationship you know that time that they spent in new orleans with with lestat i think is the the meat of louis and lestat's relationship um it's so it's filtered through so much through so much fear and sadness in in a lot of ways and 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 i think that because there was a child involved louis sees lestat in a little bit of a different way than everyone else does too i think that he got i think he feels like he got to see a side of lestat's selfishness that isn't impish or isn't the brat prince but is like genuinely like 
sociopathic. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, all right. Let's, let's dive into spoilers now. Let's talk specific. So if you haven't read the book, if you haven't seen the movie or, or one of the above, uh, stop now, go and do so, and then come join us for the rest of this. Um, I, I want to start with the big things that pop out. And these are not unique to this reading, uh, which, by the way, I listened actually to the book. I listened to the audiobook version, uh, which is a really, really good version. They've got the same narrator now for all of the Vampire Chronicles, and he's great. Yeah, he, he is great. He's truthfully great. I don't, I didn't care for his Lestat. Uh, accent at first, but it has grown on me over time. And I understand now because he has so many and so many of them are, are, are unique or like really um, subtle in their differences from one another. These characters from different, you know, uh, ancient civilizations or whatever. It, it's, he, he's got to find a middle ground and his Lestat is pretty good if you're going to listen to the bulk of the book in that one voice. So it, it works. Um, here's the thing that jumps out to me first. I always forget the level of disdain that Louis has for Lestat. You never see in any of the rest of the books, you never see from his perspective again. And you never get into his mind as far as the the you know the the actual storyteller. Maybe he still feels that. Maybe this was something that has sort of mellowed with time. But in this book in particular, he puts Lestat off as you said it last year or last episode, dumb. You know, Lestat simple. is not only uh, evil or, or or cruel; he's a dullard. Yeah, he's so uh, simple. And yeah, and and it's that that is hard for me. Again, coming from you know, my favorite character is Lestat by a country mile. I I love him so intensely. He's probably my favorite fictional character. Period. So you open up this book, you go back to the series for the first time in a while or something, and you're just confronted with page after page after page of, I hate this jackass with the blonde hair, you know? Yeah. Um, it's hard. That that part of it is really, really hard for me. Yeah, I think it's made a little easier because I've read the other books, so I know I know that it's you're just seeing it through Louis's eyes, so it's gonna change. But I had forgotten he is really harsh. Like he is he is He's very harsh about Lestat. Like when he's he just. <laughs> I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna put a clip in here from one of uh, Anne's recent Facebook Live videos. But right after she announced the new um, that that she had returned the rights to the series and and potentially that we were gonna get a TV show out of this and everything, she held a great Facebook Live. She answered a bunch of questions from fans, and one of the questions was specifically about Louis and how she feels about Louis. I'm gonna. I'll put that clip in here. Kim Ulrich is asking, what are your thoughts on Louis? How do you really feel about him? Ambivalent. Ambivalent. Louis was me when I wrote Interview with the Vampire. I was Louis. And that's a dark book. And, it, and Louis's quest ends in darkness. And eight years later, after I wrote that book, uh, I wrote The Vampire Lestat, and I somehow became Lestat. And Lestat's quest has not ended in darkness and is still going. So there will always be this ambivalence in me toward Louis because Louis was a former self of me. A former self. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. And I loved Louis and, and I loved having him in the realms of Atlantis very, very much. But it's, it's a character I have trouble going back and embracing because I'm not him anymore. But the the crux there is she feels a lot like uh, about Louis like I do. She 
feels very ambivalent about him because it is a time in her life that is almost impossible for her to return to. And there's so much of herself at that time wrapped up in Louis. That time was a sad time for her. That time was a dark time. That time's a time she's glad she climbed out of. It's hard to have much fondness for a fictional character that embodies such a dark period of your life. I can absolutely see that. The interesting thing for me is uh, and we'll get to this when we finally get to the most recent uh, Lestat book. But, you know, Louis' prominence in the most recent couple of books is actually pretty large again. He fi- he figures, um, you know, very majorly into Lestat's life, even in the modern day. And so I, I do think it's interesting that she's going to be confronting herself with that character <laughs> theoretically a lot over the next few books as she continues to write. Well, and I think, I don't think we like to most people anyway, don't enjoy, especially people who are strong and opinionated and, and, and consider themselves in control of their of their sphere. You know, nobody likes to wallow in their weakness and revel in their weakness. And I think that especially considering how Louis w- was a foil for her during that dark time, that that's not really the most pleasant place to go and revisit, pleasant place to go sit. And maybe parts of Louis that she sees when she goes back to revisit interview are parts of her that she would rather not, you know, remember, rather not re-experience that sort of thing. I'm excited. I haven't read the most recent books. I'm way behind. So this is really great for me, but I'm excited that he's going to, that we'll have more of him because I do like Louis. And I don't know if it's just because I'm very, I I tend to be a very empathetic person. I just, this whole Claudia storyline to me is so insane and heartbreaking and and like a psychological you know explosion in my head for what's for what happens to these people what happens to these characters so it's i got really sucked into to louis and his and his perspective so the two other big things that stick out to me or at least stuck out to me this time i forget about Lestat's father being in interview. Yeah, uh, I forget him entirely. Me he's, too. He's not in the film, <laughs> uh, and and because of that, it's one of those things that you sort of rewrite it in your mind. You you warp the memories together. But he's a he's a major figure in the beginning of that. As a matter of fact, according to Louis, he's the only reason why Lestat ever you know, came to him in the first place. Louis had a plantation. Lestat needed a place to put his father up so that he wouldn't be such a burden to him during the day. That's what it comes down to. He was caring for his father in the States, in New Orleans specifically, or we're led to believe somewhere around New Orleans. And it was troublesome. It was expensive and troublesome. And so he needed a place to keep this old dying man. And so that's why he gets the plantation. And the few sparks of kindness that Louis sees and shares with the readers come from his interaction, Lestat's interaction with his father. You know, there's intense moments of cruelty where Lestat berates the old man and, you know, tells him, why aren't you thankful for these things that I provide, et cetera, et cetera. But then there are also moments of real genuineness and kindness and warmth where it's clear that Lestat cares for the, for his father. And it's, it's just that whole relationship is interesting to me, and it's something I forget. On Louis' side, same thing, right around the same time in the book, I forget about the Frenier family, uh, both the sister and the brother. You know, Lestat ends up um, causing the brother's death early on, and then the sister uh, guards the two of them, hides them as they escape from the plantation to New Orleans um, when, the, when the slaves revolt. I forget about all of that stuff. Well, I- and... L- 
Louis's relationship with her in particular, with the Frenier sister, is so interesting. You know, he plays the angel to her, he plays the devil a little bit, and then sends her off on this path as an independent woman. That that whole thing is very, very interesting to me. Yeah, I completely forgot how long we spend at the plantation too. I forgot how Yeah, they're there for a long yeah. time. It's like it's it's a, it's a significant portion of the book, truthfully. Absolutely. And I don't know if it's because the movie kind of clouds my memories of the book a little bit because it's much more about living in New Orleans and and Louis and Lestat and Claudia and less about, you know, what happens how they get there, but man, it's a huge portion of the book that we're, we learn. You know, I kind of forgotten about. I mean, I remembered, but I didn't really remember about his brother. What happens with with Louis's brother? Um, and I forgot that Louis had a sister completely. Like I completely forgot he had a sister at all. You know, I just I I I did not remember much about the first the first section of this book at all. <laughs> So I, I, I also forget his sister. I, the brother is easy for me to remember for some reason because the image of the, the brother being pushed down the stairs by the you know ghostly apparition or whatever, yeah. that image always stuck with me as a kid. And for some reason you know the story of the haunted holy brother really made sense to me. That one that one was sort of like and 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 then Louis, uh, regret at that he chastised his brother for you know these uh, these visions and everything and and he called him crazy and he wouldn't indulge him with the expense of you know getting rid of all of the family's wealth etc cetera, etc cetera. but on the flip side like I don't know it just seems such a small thing for him to dwell on in the vastness of the rest of his life and all of the lives that he is directly responsible for ending for instance you know it's interesting the things we dwell but that's on. totally louis he he is he's i mean he lives in a place of regret i feel like you know he just he 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 just stays there mentally i mean so much of so much in his voice is is regret and and missed opportunities and what ifs and i um I, but I think that's why I feel so I feel so sorry for him, and maybe that's why I like him so much because like it's sort of like oh, I like Ringo the best of the Beatles because nobody else does, <laughs> you know. So it, I don't know if it's like sort of that sort of thing why I have so much sympathy for him, but I just feel like I, f- I feel like that's really freaking tragic. Like you've got this beautiful breadth of existence that you've had, and what you fixate on are missed opportunities and mistakes you made when you were a mortal. Like in the 1700s, that was so long ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so here, here's the thing that that always gets me about Louis, and it's and it's strange. You know, uh, our friend uh, Richard Bennett, he and I were discussing the new Star Wars movie the other day, and he was telling me that his son loves Darth Vader. He is fascinated by Darth Vader, but he literally cannot stand to be in the room even for a few moments of actual film footage with Darth Vader doing anything. He's just, he's overwhelming to him. <laughs> um, so, and I feel like the, the, I am a guy who does not believe in the death penalty. Okay. I am not for capital punishment in any right. way. And yet the thing that makes me not like Louis the most is his insistence for long periods of his life on not drinking from humans. I hate that he's a rat eater. It bothers me so much. And I, and I just, I feel like 
uh, and Lestat shows him like there are ways to you can drain the evildoer you can take the little drink you don't even have to kill your prey if you don't want to like there are ways to be a vampire and try to live by some moral code other than just being a rat catcher and it bothers <laughs> me for his periods of, of rat catching it bothers me it's one of the reasons why I think at the end of interview when you have the whole section where he goes and finds Lestat uh, you know in disrepair and he's sort of lost his mind he's living like a hoarder or whatever it's an example of how far he's fallen, right? That he's eating right. rats at that point. He's- and and I think, I don't know. It's just those, that image is always just, ugh. and from the film too, like it did it in the movie. I was like, yeah, how disgusting and how lowly. Like, and it's always made me look down on Louis for some reason for that. Well, at least if you're going to eat animals, eat something bigger. Do you know how many freaking rats you'd have to eat to like, <laughs> I don't know. Like I'm thinking logistically, that's just not smart. Like you're smart. You're better than that, Louis. You're better than that. I mean, get a get, cow. You can get gators in Louisiana, right? Just go to the swamp. Yeah, it tastes like gators. chicken. It's you, fine. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there is this beautiful little section of uh, prose in chapter 14. Um, it's right at the beginning. Louis is, they've just arrived in Paris. I'm sort of skipping ahead a little bit in time, but I, I saw this and I wanted to make sure and share it because it is so beautiful and it gives a glimpse to me of how Anne's love of New Orleans comes through in all the books. And if you have any connection directly to New Orleans, the books grow that much richer because of that. Absolutely. Here's what Louis says. He says, New Orleans, but New Orleans, though beautiful and desperately alive, was desperately fragile. There was something forever savage and primitive there, something that threatened the exotic and sophisticated life both from within and without. Not an inch of those wooden streets nor a brick of the crowded Spanish houses had not been bought from the fierce wilderness that forever surrounded the city, ready to engulf it. Hurricanes, floods, fevers, the plague, and the damp of the Louisiana climate itself worked tirelessly on every hewn plank or stone facade, so that New Orleans seemed at all times like a dream in the imagination of her striving populace, a dream held intact at every second by a tenacious, though unconscious, collective will. Now, they're in Paris they're talking about how Paris is not that Paris on the other hand is a fortified city and it is this ancient uh, thing that is, you know, never going to fall, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But hearkening back. And even when you're somewhere else, even when you're in maybe the greatest city in the world at the time, he's dreaming of and fond of and preaching for the beauties of new Orleans. I think that's such a apt description of the city itself. And again, if you have any connection to the city, you cannot help but love these books. I think as they paint such a beautiful picture. Oh, a hundred percent. I think that, um, I think I mentioned in the, in the last, last podcast, we were talking about how I, I started reading these books around the same time. We started taking family vacations to new Orleans at least once a year. My dad was a huge fan of new Orleans, loved it, loved it. And, um, and I would literally try to figure out places, you know, like landmarks, places they talked about. And I, th- I honestly think that's one of the reasons why to this day, New Orleans is my favorite city that I've ever been to. I have such a huge, huge place in my heart for it. It's, I just, there's a special energy there. There's a special, I don't, it's just, it's an amazing, amazing city. And I guarantee you part of that is reading these books when I was that age at the same time I was going down there, it just really created this mythos of this beautiful city for me. I absolutely love it. It's it's so fragile and so and so powerful and so untamed. It's just oh, don't even get me started. I freaking love New Orleans. So 
fragile and powerful and untamed. That's a pretty apt description of the female lead of this book, Claudia. Ah, let's let's talk about excellent Claudia segue, a bit. Joel. She's, yeah, I thought so too. I saw the window, so I jumped <laughs> at it. Good, uh, good. She's she's six years old and probably dying of the plague when. Louis and Lestat find her. Louis has been in one of his phases as a rat catcher. He starved himself to a degree, and Lestat in particular has been toying with him and tormenting him, both because of his current um, attitudes and actions, but also because of his own, you know, moral struggle. Um, Lestat, at least in this book, sees this as a weakness and is attacking him for it. The the idea being he's trying to purge himself, I think, of this, or purge Louis of this um, last remnants of humanity or something. You know, that's what it feels like anyway in the books. And he pushes him to a place where he literally brings him to this girl, this dying girl and her mother, who may already be dead beside the girl, even as they find them, I think. And Louis drinks and would have killed Claudia, did, in fact, except that Lestat skirts her away, gets her nursed, and then takes the girl back from the humans that had patched her up a little bit and brings her back to Louis the next night to convert her into a vampire, a child for the two of them. First of all, the story of having a baby to try to fix your messed Thank up relationship you. is uh, pretty common in the human world, Jesus. right? Like, uh, I, I mean, let's, let's make a baby is never the answer to your communication problems, friends. Um, and it is definitely not the case here, especially when you trap that baby in, into the body of a six-year-old as she ages into a very, very capable woman. But th- the character of Claudia, even from those first few incidents... You can tell that she is tenacious, that she is, in many ways, it mirrors to me the childhood of Lestat. Not that he, he obviously wasn't raised in the slums, he didn't suffer from um, you know, the plague, but he was put upon. He suffered hardships in one way or another, and he had this innate desire to survive, to climb above his fellow man in some way, so that he at least would make it out of the rabble. And Claudia, I think, even in those first few incidents, shows that exact same tenacity. Clearly, if the vampires had never happened on her, I think she her story would have ended right there. But it seems like, whether it was through this means or some other, perhaps she would have found a way to make a way for herself. I don't know. I always just had that impression of her. And maybe that maybe that has more to do with what I bring to the story or what, you know, I don't know, Kirsten Dunst's portrayal in the film brings to the story. But I, I see her as... You know, Queen Elizabeth uh, famously said, uh, if I were dropped in my underpants anywhere in Christendom, I would not only uh, survive, but thrive. And I feel that way about Claudia. Well, (laughs) I think, too, she provides, she is and does what Lestat is trying to drag out of Louis. You know, she likes killing. (laughs) You know, she's not messed up about taken down a victim like she plays like she even plays with her food a little you know that I don't know I think that I think that she delights Lestat in so many ways because so much of what disappoints him about Louis and what he wishes Louis were not she is well it's an interesting experiment too in that I mean, effectively, she has no human memories, you know, because of her young age, the um, the, the stress and turmoil in which she was brought over, etc. All of her personality really is developed after she turns 
to a vampire. And so you've got this creature, very unlike Louis or Lestat or Armand even, uh, who was a little bit older and sort of trained for it before he was brought over into vampirism. Claudia, all she knows is this life, this life that means that if I go on as this powerful preternatural creature, then you must die. Somebody's got to die every night. Maybe a bunch of people. Yeah, on <laughs> um, a good night. And and yeah, and 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 the fact that she starts with that as the fundamental basis of her universe, you know, and then she tries to build herself. I think still a moral structure or an ethical structure on top of that, but her she has no fundamental humanity really to then bolt on you know, the new circumstances that she faces as a vampire. It's really, really interesting. And especially once you see her, you know, they spend 65 years together in New Orleans, theoretically happy before everything falls apart. Once you see her, though, on her own, as this a senior woman, really, um, in the, the prime of her life, but in this tiny body, you see her own plans. I mean, she's looking... First of all, she's looking for answers. So, like, she pushes Louis even more. So he also pondered what a, what about other vampires? But he never would have left on his own volition. No. He never would have forced the issue with Lestat on his own um, doing. It took Claudia to set everything into motion. And so they do. They travel to Europe and they find these, which again, I forget about this from the film, they find other vampires, mindless, sort of zombie-like, um, you know, Nosferatu almost vampires. And then it's never really even explained. There's, it's sort of hand-waved by Armand that these are creatures that were, you know, they're, they're created and, and locked in their coffins too long. And uh, they, they sort of go mad because they don't have any blood early on. And then you've got a, basically a mindless, hungry beast. I've always but wondered like, if, like, we were ever going to meet that style of vampire again in the books i think she just must find them boring because we sure don't we never go back to that we never revisit well and no not at all like the and again it's very very hand wavy armon goes yeah don't worry about them i mean and that's pretty much all <laughs> no attention you, to the man behind you hear the curtain about yeah, yeah pretty much and i'm i'm like but i want but how did that happen like i there's no other circumstance in the books that seems to tell you that if that had happened to Louis or Lestat, let's say that shortly after they'd been turned into a vampire, they had been locked in their coffin for what, years? Decades? How long would it take for them to come back insane whenever they were finally uh, roused with with blood and uh, a little room to to run? I don't know. Anyway, but that's such an interesting moment. So they, they go looking for answers, and then when she doesn't find them there, she says, okay, Let's set ourselves up a very nice life. I want to go to Paris. I want to stay in the finest hotels. And I want you to make me uh, a girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's, uh, I'm, I'm like real quick, she's got her shopping list out. Yeah. And you you listen to the passages in there where uh, Louis is sort of alarmed at the way in which she spends money. She feels about, you know, resources, uh, money and time, the same way that she feels about blood, I think, in that it is made to be spent, it's made to be spilled, it is made to be taken in to me. And in that nature, she is very, very much Lestat's child. Oh, yeah, she's living Kardashian style over there. It's pretty, <laughs> you know, um, I think so much of, of what drives Louis, too, is fear for her. Um, and, and, and a way that, and I don't know... It'd be interesting, bless her, we'll never know because we won't ever get it from her perspective, but if she does it on purpose to manipulate Louis because she knows he still sees her as a child 
and she knows that she can that she can manipulate him by playing on that. You know what I mean? And so, so much of the choices he makes down to them attacking Lestat, um, down to dealing with the vampires in Paris, it's all based off of fear for Claudia, which I think is really interesting. And fear is never a good driving motivator for anyone. You'll make bad choices. No. No, no, you make very rash decisions, like burning the whole theater down. Although, I don't know, those were some pretty bastard vampires. Oh, yeah, they're there. dicks. Uh, the, the Teatro de Vampire, uh, Santiago, I think, what an you know, first asshole. among the assholes. God, um, I hate I mean, that he, guy. The introduction of Santiago, I think, is very, very cool. The way that he mirrors Louis in the uh, alleyway and then, you know, sort of attacks him uh, physically shows shows that force and the strength that he possesses. Um, I always liked that. But then why? Why the antagonistic nature? And I, it still doesn't really make sense to me if you look at the overall arc of the story. Like, I don't see any tie for him directly to Lestat. I don't see any reason why he would so badly want to serve justice or revenge there. And while, okay, clearly making a child vampire would be against the rules, and I can understand that. Killing your maker would be against the rules, and I can understand that. The haste with which he rushes to judge the two of them, or the three of them, I should say, and then the, I don't know, the level of animosity that he shows was never really, okay, well, maybe you're just a jerk, I guess. All right, and in that case, I'm glad you're dead now. And in particular, the film does a great job of showcasing this. I love when Brad, you know, cuts his head off and flips around into the fire. So satisfying. Um, So... What though? What was your impression of of the Teatro de Vampires? The idea of you know these vampires living out in the open, claiming what they are, and it not being believed. I thought that was a really interesting. Concept. It feels a little cultish, you know, because yes. they've all dyed yeah, they've all dyed their hair black. They all they all dress head to toe in black. Um, and when I think too, going back to what we were saying earlier about what Anne asked of her fans, no one's going to believe a vampire is real. You know, they they set up this illusion and they even do it within under an umbrella of an, an illusion with it being they put on theatrical productions where they literally kill someone on stage and no one in the audience seems to realize that's really what's happening. So they, they create all of this vast illusion and everything's based on on tricks. And even with with Santiago, like and, and, and with Armand and their dealings with Louis, so much things so many things seem like little sight gags, little little magic tricks almost. You know, like when he puts the card in Louis's pocket, inviting him to the theater, and how it's the way he moves, but it's almost like his arm is moving with separate from his body. You know, so I think a lot of it is just these these insane illusions they've created, and then people just in general we're so into ourselves and we don't pay attention to what's going on around us for the most part would never even notice that it's anything other than that. Well, and it's interesting when you look back in hindsight, you go and read the vampire Lestat and you see Lestat's the one that set all of that up. <laughs> you know, I mean, he he basically gave them the suggestion, like you could live among the mortals. You could continue to do this just fine. Nobody would ever believe you. And they went, oh, 
Well, okay, and they did. This is the leftovers of you know the the coven that lived under the streets of of um, uh, Paris and tormented Lestat when he first became a vampire after Magnus created him. And so it was really interesting, sort of seeing that flipped around from the other direction. And it is very interesting, and it's always painted my opinion of Armand to see how he manipulates Louis's knowledge, you know, or lack thereof, yes. I should say. Louis doesn't know. Louis doesn't know that Lestat and Armand have any history. Louis doesn't know that Lestat is in any way connected to this theater. Louis doesn't know that there are vampires, many vampires, older than Armand. And maybe, theoretically, maybe Armand doesn't know that at this moment either. And so when he tells Louis that he's the oldest living vampire at 400 years, maybe Armand believes that to be true. But knowing what we know now about the mind gift and the way that these vampires can connect to one another, you can't imagine that that would actually be true. Surely Armand would have known that there were some others. Maybe he doesn't know exactly who they are, where they came from, or where they are now. But, like, I don't know. It's clear to me, anyway, that he is manipulating Louis, acting as if I am the only possible fount of information for you. And so, therefore, come and do what I want it's you to do. It's the same thing Lestat did to Louis. Figure out. Absolute, it's, absolutely it's the same like, thing. Which, poor Louis. He gets so manipulated because he just doesn't freaking know and he's scared. It's so bad. I hate it. <laughs> well, and the the only upside to that, to me anyway, is that eventually Louis tires of him. You know, I mean, that's what it comes down to is Louis gets bored with Armand. He spends this time from him. He learns a lot from, from Armand. They are good companions. And yet in the end, he goes off on his own. Why? Armand does not have the connection, the, the the magnetism for Louis that even Lestat did. Even as cruel as he was, even as messed up as their relationship was, they don't have Armand and, Le, and Louis do not have the longevity that Louis and Lestat did. And I always felt like that was sort of a vindication. Yeah. Um, but then they go and showed me Ratcatcher Lestat and totally ruined the end <laughs> of the book anyway for me. So like, I, I didn't want to see my my guy uh they're suffering but but you know that first time through i do remember because you as i said in the first episode of this i read the prologue to the tale of the body thief so i basically got introduced to lestat as a god effectively and then you go back and you see him at the end of this book in shambles like literally nothing he's 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 a hobo you know and you're like how does he get from here to there and so it was very exciting to me to jump off from the end of this book into the next book and see how Lestat sort of recovered himself well and um that was sort of the compelling you know push at the end of this and coming from the perspective of this is the first book I read I have to say that asshole deserves it like I like there's part of me that's like, yeah, I'm excited to see you brought low because, man, you play all sides. You are a master manipulator. I think it's all right that you sit here and eat some rats for a few minutes and have companions leave you constantly. I think it's OK that you get what you gave, you know? Well, and it, uh, that is one thing that, that struck me. I wonder now, where did all of those fledglings yeah, go. Right? Like, where are all of Lestat's children from that time, um, you know, when he was uh, when he was a hobo, when he was making vampires left hobo and right Lestat. and they wouldn't stay with him? <laughs> yeah, yeah, hobo Lestat. Exactly. I want that action figure, actually. Yeah, we need to, we need to, I want a um, pop Funko of that. <laughs> so, so in our next episode, when we get together to record again, we're going to talk about Interview with the Vampire, the film starring Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise, and we'll talk about some of the specific differences and, and the good parts of uh, those performances that we did enjoy, some of the things that they left out. But overall, 
if that is your experience or that's your primary experience with this book, it really would behoove you as a fan of her work to go back and read the novel. Just a crazy amount of differences between incidents. The movie truncates a lot of things, of course. You know, it has to. There's 65 years worth of time there in New Orleans. You can't put all of that into the film. But other moments seem very, very stretched out to me. For instance, I think they do a really good job of showing the passage of time or, or of hinting at the passage of time between Armand and Louis uh, at the end of the thing. That sort of wrap-up after the vampire, uh, after the Teatro de Vampires, there, there's that feels very significant, that time period to, to them. And so when you read it in the book, it doesn't seem like you lost a lot there. Right, right. And I, I tend to be, a, I would say, I only know of one instance personally where I do not feel like the book is better and that would be Last of the Mohicans. Um, <laughs> but this is one This is one of those cases, like, I think, like, I, for instance, started watching Game of Thrones before I read it. And then I went back and started reading it because I wanted to get caught up. And there's just so much more richness to the story when you, when you hit the book. And I will say this, a difference between picking up its home, like that first Game of Thrones book, and versus this, this is a good read, y'all. It's an easy read. It's not like hacking through, you know, all the histories of the families of the Seven Kingdoms. You don't need a freaking like, not yet. You don't need like a family tree chart yet, you know, to to figure out relationships and to understand what's happening with these characters. And it's a very, despite it being about supernatural, having supernatural elements and and being about vampires, it's a very human story. Yes, absolutely. Um- while I did mention my Vampire Companion book uh, earlier, the Vampire Companion is not nearly as useful or necessary as the Mayfair, the Witch's oh, yeah. Companion. If you get into the Mayfair series, that it really is a mass of uh, timelines and historical connections and names and dates to, to sort of sort out for yourself. Um, Interview with the Vampire in particular, just starting this series out, you read that one, even when you get into the Vampire Lestat, which of course includes a lot of history and time, um, still the narrative itself is pretty straightforward. And and as you say, this one is much more about the personalities and the relationships than it is about the supernatural nature of the characters themselves. Absolutely. All right. Well, that is uh, our discussion of Interview with the Vampire. We'd love to hear what you think about the book and uh, how you first came to the series. You can email us, articulatecoven at gmail.com. That's an easy way to get in touch. You can find us on Facebook. We've got a Facebook group there, facebook.com slash groups slash articulatecoven. It is a closed group in case you're a spammer, but if you send us a request, we'll put you in there. And as long as you don't try to sell us uh, Ray-Bans or some prescription drugs, <laughs> we will make sure and leave you there as well. Good conversations going on in the Facebook group all the time. Ashley, you got anything to uh, share before we wrap no, up? No, just uh, just excited. I'm gonna I'm gonna download the movie and burn through that here in the next couple of days and kind of compare notes. I'm excited. To, uh, haven't watched Interview with a Vampire in a hot minute either. I've definitely seen it more recently than I've read it. And I, I have to say, uh, reading reading this book again just got me so jacked and excited about reading the rest of them again. You know, so I'm just you're right. Yeah, I, I'm like I'm I'm gonna get done with this and then you know, go pick up a book and take a hot bath. It's going to be great. So this will be the first, I, I watch Brad Pitt on a regular basis. I love Brad Pitt's one of my favorite actors, period. But Tom Cruise, I truthfully don't care for most of his modern yeah. films. So this will be, this will be the first Tom Cruise movie I've watched in quite some time. Yeah. I, I don't know exactly how long it'll be, but you got to go back a ways to, to get the old Tommy boy. I, I will say this too, before we get there next episode, 
I really enjoy Tom Cruise's. I do too. I do. I do. And I was <laughs> like, I was with Anne. I was not on board with that casting <laughs> at first. I was like, No, Are you no. Me? But he won me over. Yeah, in the he end. really did. He. I think that that's, and I don't like him either. Sorry, Tom, if you're listening. I'm, <laughs> I don't mean to offend. Um, yeah, I don't. <laughs> I, I don't care for him either. But I did really like him in this role. Well, we will discuss him and Brad and uh, Kirsten and all the rest of them. Uh, Antonio Banderas. We will also Hell discuss yes. him at length. I'm sure. Uh, in next episode of Articulate Coven. Until then, we've been your hosts. I'm Joel. I'm Ashley. And this has been Articulate Coven. Thanks for listening to the Articulate Coven. You can join our community on Facebook by following the links in the show notes or searching for Articulate Coven on Facebook. You can subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at ArticulateCoven.com. And share us with your Anne Rice-loving friends. <laughs>